As Palestine and Israel explodes into what seems to be turning to a full-blown war, I think there is one thing that everyone can agree on, and that is free Palestine. The question is, free Palestine from who? Free Palestine from Zionist settlers or free Palestine from Hamas? Hey, it's Lucas Grobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Grobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. Thanks for being with me on the show. Today, May 15th is my recording. It's coming out on the 16th, and I normally don't mention that, but I feel the, the date and time of where we are uh, when it comes to this conflict between Palestine and Israel is important for the context of this episode. Over the last week, I've been very silent on this conflict. I've been probably read and watched videos and had conversations and scrolled through endless comments, uh, read a bunch of history, probably 50 hours worth over the last week in in preparation for this episode. And one of the, the biggest things that I fought for was reading every post that I disagreed with, reading all the comments that I was like, I don't think this is right. Looking at every video that was sent my way that I I didn't trust the source on, that I'm like, oh, I don't like this person. Those were the videos that I paid special attention to. Those were the stories that I paid special attention to because I do not want to go into a highly contested, highly emotional a situation or debate or conflict um, or even episode like this without understanding both sides and without making sure that I'm I'm taking time to hear the other side of the argument. And it, one of the things that really has saddened me over the last week is seeing people who are, decide to take the middle ground, who decide to say, okay, I'm going to try to keep politics out of this and I'm just going to try to be very humane about it and say, man, I just, my heart is breaking seeing innocent children killed on both sides of this war. Seeing those people railroaded and just just plowed over the the horrible things that are, are, are said when these people, these individuals try to take a middle road it's it's very disheartening. It's very disheartening for me to see uh, our, our society culture move to such a place where trying to find a middle ground is something that is is detestable. And that's what I want to do on this episode. I want to find a middle ground. Now, of course, I have an opinion. I don't think this is going to be unbiased by any way. But if you hear something or if you hear something I say from this episode or a, a, an opinion that I missed, which I'm going to miss a lot of opinions, uh, please send them my way. I would love to have a conversation with you. But one of the biggest, one of the biggest arguments that I feel is very illegitimate and, and important to bring up that is going around the the social media sphere when it comes to this conflict is the fact that People are saying you can't even use the word conflict in this. That it is wrong to say conflict. It is wrong to say that there's two sides. I've heard this argument made many times. In fact, I've heard people say, quote, 
Israel has no right to defend itself because Israel is the oppressor, established at the expense of Palestinian suffering. People have said, quote, don't use the words, quote unquote, two sides or conflict, don't even. And this isn't just one source, but multiple people, it's a, a, a it seems to be a, a growing theme that it's not a conflict, it's not a war, it is resistance versus an oppressor. And it's boiled down to such a, a singular level that if you disagree, well, you're labeled. If you if you have a, a thought that's different than one side, and I think probably both both parties, the 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 pro-Israel party and the pro-Palestinian party are have a lot of the same rhetoric going on. In my feeds, 99% of everything that I see is very pro-Palestine, very anti-Israel, and I, I really don't see anything that's in the middle ground at all. And it's it's disheartening. It's disheartening that, that there's not more work that's being done to find a middle ground. And in some ways, this episode is very, it's very challenging for me to do because I, I do wonder, will people judge me for my opinions on this, especially when I see that all of the people in my feed think pretty much exactly opposite than I do, which leads me to the first clip, which is from a, a podcast by Jordan Peterson, where he had Jocko Wilkin on his show, where he was talking about approaching conflicts with an open mind versus approaching one with contempt. The fact that, well, I go to have a conversation with someone and I just think that I'm right. I think that my viewpoints are right and your viewpoints are wrong. And worse, worse, not just wrong, contemptible. Exactly. That's like the ultimate expression of wrong, right? They're beneath my consideration. Right. Yeah, and that's that's not good. That's so definitely how, not good. How do I how do I listen to anything that you say? How do I how do I find any common ground with you if I think that what you think is contemptible? And so therefore we can't have a conversation. And if we don't have a conversation, we can't find any mutual ground. And that means we can't find solutions to the problems that we're facing. And it yes. And it means when push comes to shove, we have to fight. Yes, it does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm here to tell you that's not a good option. When push comes to shove, we have to fight. If we're unable to sit down at a table and listen to someone else's side. And, and I can honestly say over the last week, I have, I have read so much literature on both sides trying to understand this conflict that I have, I have truly worked to see and understand the other side. And I'm completely open to being proven wrong and to, to having what I have to say and my perspective totally debunked. But going into this past week, we have seen on the Palestinian side 174 people dead, 47 of which are children. The loss of life is just horrific. In one home that was bombed by an airstrike, 10 people died, most of which were children. We've seen doctors have been killed in these airstrikes. We've seen uh, media buildings destroyed. Now they were informed beforehand that they were demolishing the building. 
but still it's it's heartbreaking to see the fruit of war it's heartbreaking to see the loss of life on the gaza to Palestinian side, the Gaza Strip has fired over 2,500 rockets since the outbreak of fighting a week ago on Monday, according to the Israeli Defense Force. Ten people in Israel, including a young child, have been killed in the rocket fire. Hundreds have been injured. Two of those ten that were killed were Arab Israelis who were killed in their car in the city of Lod. And one of those was a five-year-old that was bunkering in a bomb shelter. One argument that I see going on a lot is, well, everyone's in bomb shelters. But even a five-year-old child in a bomb shelter lost his life. Now, of course, we can jump to the comparison of the amount of life lost from one side to the other. I think that cheapens the loss of life on both sides. And it misses some important points and important uh, not even nuances, but just realities of the conflict between Israel and Palestine, Israel and the Gaza Strip specifically, which began firing rockets, thousands of rockets at Israel. And if it wasn't for the Israeli uh, Iron Dome system, which is is shooting down most of these rockets before they can hit populated areas, we would have seen and would still see much more extensive damage done to civilian populations, whereas Israeli defense forces are targeting specific buildings that are being operated by Hamas, which Hamas is the ruling party, the ruling uh, de facto government of the Gaza Strip, but it's also a terrorist organization. They also hide their weapons underneath schools and hospitals, and they, they... take their command posts in civilian centers and apartment buildings to use civilians as a means of shielding them from attacks from Israel. And so there is a vast difference between launching thousands of rockets in attempt to hit anything and anyone and Israel doing a knock bomb, which is when you they drop it, a small explosive device on a roof that doesn't penetrate the building to warn everyone that within an hour they're going to destroy the building. And then they call people up on the ground to say, hey, we're going to be taking this building out. Make sure that everyone is out of the building. There seems to be a vast difference between the two parties. And oftentimes that's conflated. Oftentimes that that fact is overlooked just based on the fact of the number of people who are lost. And now this is and when I say tragic, I don't mean it lightly. It is a the deeply saddening and tragic, broken part of war. And something that that every nation has to decide before embarking on to war of saying, is the loss of life worth it to go into war knowing that we will be taking lives and our lives will be taken? Or Should we remain how we are or is remaining how we are and not taking action? Will that actually result in something far worse? Here again is another clip by Jocko Wilkin. If you are going to go to war, if you are going to go to war, you have to make sure before you go that you have 
the proper will. The proper will. And there's two types of will that you need to have if you're going to go to war. The first type of will that you need to have if you're going to go to war is you have to have the will to kill. You have to have the will to kill. And guess what? I am sorry to inform everybody. It is not just the will to kill the enemy. Because when you go to war, war is an imperfect is an imperfect endeavor. And no matter how hard you try to just kill the, the enemy, you will kill civilians, you will kill women, you will kill children. That is what is going to happen. That is what is going to happen if you go to war. So you have to make sure you have the will to do that. That sometimes you're going to drop a bomb and it's going to land and it's going to kill women and children. That's what's going to happen. And anybody that thinks anything different is naive and ignorant. We seem to let our politicians often convince us that that's possible, but it's not. So you have to have the will to kill. And then on top of that, obviously, you have to have the will to die. You have to have you have to know and understand that if you embark in a war, your sons and daughters are going to be killed. That is what is going to happen. And anybody that says it's not going to happen is naive and ignorant. This is the reality that we're seeing right now. This is the reality of war. And if this continues, we will see more women and children lost on both sides of this conflict. We will see more civilians, more loss of life, more loss of doctors who work with, with doctors beyond borders, who, a doctor who died in Gaza. We are going to see more children lost if we continue. So my hope, my prayer, is that we can move past, move past our polarized worldviews and try to find a solution. And I pray that we can find a peaceful resolution for this conflict quickly, but it would help us in finding that peaceful resolution to understand what caused the escalation of what's happening right now between Palestine and Israel. If you're listening to this, I'm assuming you probably have some form of a backstory. You have some form of an idea of what has led to this escalation between Israel and uh, specifically Gaza, where rockets are being fired back and forth, but also civil unrest that's breaking out in areas of Israel and, of course, in the West Bank as well, in Palestine, as the, 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 the resistance to the Israeli powers uh, rises. But there was a video that came out recently by Trevor Noah. I believe he actually took it down because it received so much negative uh, backlash from both sides of the party. And I can understand why. I didn't like most of his arguments. Noah Trevor, who, Trevor, who is a South African comedian, but he did make two great points, which I wanted to play here to preface what we're going to get into. Here's Noah Trevor from a, a clip that he put out last week. People are always going to say 
that you're leaving out some crucial piece of context. And you know what the truth is? They're probably right. And you know what makes it even harder? Is the fact that who's right and who's wrong always seems to change depending on when you start measuring time. So who's right and who's wrong? And as he said, it always is gonna change depending on when you start to measure time. So in this conflict, who's right and who's wrong? Is it Israel who's wrong for bombing Al Jazeera and for bombing Hamas strike or targets and in the process seeing innocent women and children die? Or is Hamas wrong for launching in the past week 2,500 rockets at civilian targets? Now, praise God, alhamdulillah, there's not been much loss of life due to an incredible defense system, which is knocking these rockets down out of the air. Well, that then begs the question, well, what caused Gaza to, to begin launching rockets? What started that in the first place? So when do we start measuring time? Do we start measuring time when Israel begins bombing Hamas sites in Gaza, which results in the death of hundreds of civilians? Do we start measuring time when Gaza begins sending rockets, 2,000 rockets over the course of a week against cities, not even military targets? Do we start measuring time when we see hundreds of Jews dancing and celebrating at the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, at the base of the Temple Mount as a tree on top of the Temple Mount burns on fire, like in this clip right here? Or do we realize that in this clip, which has been regarded as the, the Jews celebrating the fact that there's a fire on top of the Temple Mount, we realize that they are actually just very nationalistic and they're celebrating their independence and their declaration of independence from back in 1948. Well, so then why is there a fire burning? Well, that might be because the, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, raided the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which the Al-Aqsa Mosque is the third most holy site in Islam and is located on top of the Temple Mount. And with that, it is the, the Arabs are allowed to pray on top of the Temple Mount, but the Jews are not and is considered a, a very holy site. And on the last Friday of Ramadan, one of the most holy Fridays of the month of Ramadan, the Israeli Defense Force raided Al-Aqsa Mosque. So you can say, well, well, that's a, a violation of human rights under UN law. They brought stun grenades into Al-Aqsa Mosque. They used rubber bullets against people who were peacefully praying. Well, why did they do that? Well, the Arab Israelis on top of the Temple Mount were staging and beginning to, to prepare for a riot and were stockpiling not only fireworks, but rocks and, and bricks inside Al-Aqsa Mosque. Here's a clip of them firing fireworks, which caused that tree to catch fire on top of the most holy site of the Jews and the, most holy, the third most holy site of the Muslims. And that clash led to 200 Palestinians 
been injured in Al-Aqsa Mosque, and 17 Israeli police officers were wounded as a result in the, of the clash. Do we start it there, or do we start it a little bit earlier? Or do we start it a little bit earlier, when hundreds of Israeli Arabs came on top of the Temple Mount with Hamas flags, green Hamas flags, and chanting and singing, Al-Aqsa, with our blood, we will redeem you. Here's a clip. Well, we could always say we have to understand why they were doing this. Why Why were they? What caused them to do such a gathering? Well, was this completely unprovoked or was it because on April 22nd, a far-right protest was organized by an Israeli group, Lahava? Some 300 Israeli Jews, most of them young men, marched towards the Damascus Gate, although pr- participants told journalists they were demonstrating against ongoing attacks of Jewish residents, they shouted unacceptable racist slogans, including death to Arabs, and hurled stones and set crash cans ablaze. That should be utterly condemned. I mean, that that is blatant racism and extremism right there. Now, this Lahava group, they uh, believe in the prevention of the assimilation of the Holy Land, and they're a far-right Jewish organization based in Israel that strictly opposes Jewish assimilation. This is from Wikipedia. Objecting to the most personal relationships between Jews and non-Jews, it has been called alt-right, and it opposes the Christian presence in Israel. It denounces marriages between Jews and non-Jews, as it's forbidden by Orthodox Jewish law, and its actions have been denounced by the President of Israel as being rodents gnawing under the shared democracy and Jewish foundation of Israel. So we can see here, there is a clear argument for extremism. There's a a clear argument of there are people, there are Jews in Israel that are looking to have a, a sort of ethnic cleansing of the land. Well, why did this particular far-right protest start? What started that? Well, that was triggered by what was called the TikTok Intifada. Intifada means uprising, a violent uprising. Now, what was happening at the beginning of Ramadan, there was a a TikTok uh, movement or trend that was happening. And in these videos, they would encourage attacks on Jews showing Jews being attacked, symbols of of Israeli governments being attacked, or religious incitement, usually involving false claims of Israeli attacks on the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and instructional videos on how to commit acts of terrorism. So did that spur on this? Where do we start measuring? Or do we start measuring from quotes like this, clips like this, of, again, people from the the far alt-right Lahava extremist group. I think Israelis have to take over, and uh, they have to kick them, uh, kick them away. It will be much better not to, not to kill them, just to to go back to to Arab countries. Rhetoric like this does not help anyone. And I think when I see clips like this and the, the clip goes on, multiple people uh, essentially saying the same thing, saying that Arabs 
and Jews cannot live together, and that they want to see the Arabs be pushed out of all of Israel. Now, this is not the majority of the Arab population in Israel or the Jewish population in Israel. Now, there's 1.6 Arabs, I believe, who are in who are Israeli Arabs currently. So there is a, a 20% Arab Israeli population currently in Israel. But the majority, the, the main driver that people are saying that's causing this conflict was the expulsion or the eviction of four houses in Sheikh Jarrah, which is a neighborhood in each East Jerusalem, which was annexed by Jerusalem after the Six-Day War. Now, the argument then continues on, was that illegal annexation or illegal? And there is a good argument, I think, on probably both sides. I think the most clear one is from the UN Resolution 242, which came after the 1967 Six-Day six War, which said that Israel had the right to maintain defensible borders. And so with that, they took over East Jerusalem as where the line was split down the center of Jerusalem uh, was not defensible. So Israel annexed the Eastern Jerusalem and has been caused a, a point of contention ever since. Well, so what's happening with what are being called Zion settlers in East Jerusalem, a highly contended neighborhood in Israel. The Sheikh Jarrah property dispute is a long-running dispute involving the ownership of certain properties and housing units in Sheikh Jarrah. This is according to Wikipedia. The neighborhood of East Jerusalem is considered to be a microcosm of the Israeli-Palestinian dispute over land since 1984. Israeli law allows Jews to file claims over land in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, which they may have owned prior to 1984, but reject Palestinian claims over land in Israel, which they own. This right here is where you say, aha, see, this is exactly it. This is the exact racism that, that we're talking about when it comes to Israel. This is the exact double standards that we see that, that Jews are able to reclaim their property if they have a legal deed, but Palestinians aren't. Now, the reason that, that that this is, I was quite confused by this for a while, but after digging and doing research on the Geneva Convention, it states that refugees are able to return legally if they are willing and able to live peaceably with their neighbors. And if they are, they can either receive their property back or they can receive compensation for their property. Now, that is a contested area on both sides. But Israel's side and stance on it is, well, you are living in a nation that doesn't recognize our existence or you're living in a territory that doesn't recognize our existence or is hostile towards us. And you, by leaving, proved that you were hostile towards us as a nation, hoping for our demise. So, currently, since we don't have a peace treaty between us, we are your enemy and you are our enemy. So how can, how can we let you back in? And so until that is resolved, which Israel has put on the table multiple times, there have been multiple times, five times, that there have been peace treaties on the table where Israel says, we will pull out of your territory settlements 
or developments in your territory that you don't want us to have. We'll pull out of those. We will make Israel an international city, and we'll even begin to give access and let people who have claims to properties and titles in East places like East Jerusalem or in the Israeli territories, we can negotiate and they can get their properties back or their due compensation from that. But it's been rejected multiple times. So this is a highly contested point that can seem to be very blatantly racist or blatantly xenophobic, but really it is a matter of, of warring people. It's a matter of going to war and the cost of that. What about the four residences in Sheikh Jarrah? Well, a settlers association claimed that the property was purchased from Arab land over owners in 1876 while it was under Ottoman control. According to the Ottoman documents that were provided, it showed that the property was registered to two individuals. They had tested and they had contested the authenticity of these documents and an Israeli court had stated that the documents of Jewish ownership was indeed authentic. Now, in 19, this is an important part. In 1947, there were about 100 Jewish households in the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. In March 1948, due to mounting Arab violence in the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, the British authorities ordered the residents to evacuate within two hours. East Jerusalem came under Jordanian rule, the Trans-Jordanian rule, following the 1948 war, and the Jordanians expelled all Jews from East Jerusalem, and the Jordanian custodian of enemy property was established in 1948 to handle property taken from Jews that had fled or been expelled from the territories then under Jordan control, including these four properties in question. The evacuated Jewish residents were settled in Palestinian homes in West Jerusalem. In 1956, the Jordanian government cooperated with the UN Palestinian Relief Agency and housed 28 Palestinian refugees in Sheikh Jarrah who were required to pay rent to the custodian. What this means is that the people who were living in this property at 1956, they were refugees, Palestinian refugees, that were placed in Sheikh Jarrah, and it was under the order to pay rent to the custodian. Now, in 1967, after the Six-Day War, Israel took back this territory, and since then, it's been disputed. At that time, there were no Jews living in Sheikh Jarrah. Palestinian refugees who had been expelled or displaced from their homes in Jaffa or Haifa in the 1947-1949 Palestinian War, their descendants were housed in Sheikh Jarrah district, and no Jews lived in that neighborhood until the 2000s. Well, it was in 1972 that the Israeli custodian general registered the properties under the Jewish Trust, in which in turn, it demanded that the Palestinian tenants pay rent to the trust. In 1980, Israel annexed East Jerusalem, including these properties in question. In the consequence, Israeli property law commenced to apply to these properties, which means 
that those living in these houses needed to pay rent. And on top of it, in 1982, the Palestinian residents agreed to pay rent and accepted the Jewish ownership of the land and were allowed to live there as protected tenants. The Palestinian residents have since repudiated the agreement, saying that they were tricked into signing it and they decided to stop paying their rent. The two Jewish trusts that have been held by the Israeli courts to be owners of the property sold the homes to a, a group, a settler's organization, and since had made repeated attempts to evict the Palestinian residents in order to enable Jewish settlers to move in. So this is the backstory, which is quite an intense backstory. The, the backstory that I've heard before reading this was that these people in these four residences have lived there for generation after generation after generation, dating back to, you know, who knows when. But if, if, if this is true, which I don't understand or would know why it's not, it's clear that the people who moved in there moved in as, as late as or early as 1956. And they moved in there not as people who rightfully bought the house, but as refugees. And they were allowed to stay there. And they agreed to pay rent. And then they decided to stop paying rent, which that led to an eviction notice in 2021. The Israeli Supreme Court, which is 20% Arab, the Supreme Court is 20% Arab, it's not just all Jews, had been expected to deliver a ruling on May 10th whether or not to uphold the eviction of the Palestinian families from Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood, which had been permitted by the lower courts. The order covered 13 families, 58 people, including 17 children. Six families were to be evicted on May 2nd, and a further four families by August 1st, which this then led to the clashes between Palestinians and Israeli police over the anticipated evictions. But on May 9th, as everything began to escalate, the Israeli Supreme Court delayed the expected decision of eviction for 30 days to try to cool down the situation. So this is the narrative. And so I can see how generation after generation and, and frustration and angst between Palestinians and Israelis could lead to such a conflict. I could see how the thought of being kicked out of your home and seeing people being kicked out of your home as the video went viral on social media platforms could cause people to be enraged. But it still seems suspicious to me that we went from people being kicked out of, out of their home by a legal court order where, where they signed to say, yes, this home belongs to someone else. And th there's a clear lineage that it's not that they purchased these homes. They were placed there as refugees for a time and they were allowed to live there protected. So where I get confused and I got hung up was how did this escalate to something so big? So we've, we've gone through all these steps, but there always seemed to be a missing point to this. There always seemed to be something underlying all of this conflict. But what the one side, what the, the pro-Palestinian side is making this out to be 
is proof and evidence that Israel is an apartheid state and calling this ethnic cleansing of East Jerusalem, calling this a a, a genocidal nation, hell-bent on destroying all Arabs, on destroying Palestinians, even though Palestinians, Arabs, Arabs, Israelis have equal rights in Israel. And I think that calling it an apartheid state is actually, it does quite an injustice to actual apartheid states, like in South Africa, where there was an apartheid state, where there was a complete uh, racist uh, regime that was set up against black people. So is Israel really an apartheid state? And what is an apartheid state? Well, This comes from Mike Fieldman, who is the executive director of Honest Reporting Canada. He writes, all people living in Israel have full and equal rights, and there are no inferior or second-class citizens, unlike non-whites living in South Africa under apartheid rule. Moreover, Arabs occupy senior positions on the Israeli police force and the Knesset, which is the the Arab political party, which actually is, has a quite a strong majority right now and looking like they could overthrow Nahu to become the, the next ruling party in Israel and the Israeli judiciary system. For example, Salim Jubran, who currently serves in the Israeli Supreme Court, who is a Christian Arab, and then South Africans living under apartheid could only dream of attaining these types of positions. Ishmael Khalid is an Islamic Bedouin who's currently a diplomat in the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Bajali Wahib, who is Druze, is the acting president or was the acting president in 2007. And these are just a few examples of minority groups holding prominent positions in Israeli society. Also, an Arab judge, George Kara sentenced an ex-Israeli president, Moshe Katsav, to prison for seven years. When an Arab judge sentences a former Israeli president to jail, this is a testament of equality among its citizens, regardless of race, ethnicity, or power. In South Africa in 1953, the Bantu Education Act was passed, and this separated blacks from whites in the South African education system. The government created new curriculum for black people in which they were taught skills that were related to manual labor. But in Israel, citizens are given equal opportunity in the workplace and educational department where Palestinians and Arabs and Israelis and Jews in universities both work, study, and teach together. Today, in Israel, there are hundreds of Arab schools. Furthermore, education in the Palestinian areas of the West Banks is controlled by the Palestinian authorities. Courts, laws, taxes, police, etc. are also under the Palestinians' authorities' jurisdiction in the majority of the West Bank. Another reason that Israel is not an apartheid state is that incitement to racism is a criminal offense in Israel, which is the opposite of the apartheid state of South Africa, whose government specifically passed incendiary racist legislation. The fifth point, Arabs and Israelis receive the same treatment in hospitals. 
During the apartheid in South Africa, blacks were specifically given limited access to health care. Now, the argument is being made well in Palestine or well in Gaza. Now, the, the problem with this argument is, well, that's not technically, that's not Israel. Israel has not annexed those those areas. There's not been a peace treaty in those areas. Israel's not allowed to annex those areas currently. There would be a full-blown war. Now, if they did annex those areas, not only would a lot need to happen for that to occur, but right now in the current state, the West Bank and Gaza, they, they don't want to be annexed. They do not want to be under Israeli rule. They want their own nation state. They want their own state. And that is what they have been working towards for a number of decades now. And it seems like every time they get close, it just crumbles before everyone's eyes. Point number six, non-whites in South Africa had separate amenities, including hospitals, beaches, buses, restrooms, drinking fountains. None of this discrimination is prevalent in Israel, and the law prohibits discrimination in public places. Seventh point that he makes is Israeli Arabs have their own political party, some of whom are Israel's harshest critics. They received 13 seats in the 2015 Israeli elections. Furthermore, Arabs have equal voting rights, whereas colored people during the apartheid were not allowed to participate in the political process. Number eight, Arabs, citizens, are allowed to seek redress through the courts and governments if they feel like they have been wrong. This is nothing compared to the apartheid of South Africa, where discrimination was authorized from the highest positions of the government. Number nine, and this is a kicker, Arabs, <laughs> Arabs in Israel have more fundamental rights than the Arabs in the Gaza Strip or the West Bank. They have, they have more rights in Israel. In Israel, there is 1.6 million Arab citizens that are integrated within Israeli society. They make up 20% of Israeli population. There's no, there was no such integration in South Africa. Furthermore, according to a poll done by Harvard University, 77% of Arab citizens living in Israel would rather live there than in any other country in the world. If these citizens, these Arab citizens who are experiencing apartheid, then why are they supportive of their own nation? Fugelman goes on to say that to proclaim that Israel is an apartheid state is to undermine and trivialize the harsh and actual struggles that many black people went through during that dark time of human history in South Africa. Israel is not an apartheid state. The argument, though, is being made, well— it's not Israel, it's Israel versus the West Bank, Israel versus Gaza, Israel versus Palestine, and the way that they are treating Palestine, which is occupied. But it's not just it's not just the West Bank that is being argued as being occupied. It's the entire land that Israel occupies is being argued as being occupied by many on the West Bank, by many that I'm seeing in my social media feeds, and by many by Hamas specifically in Gaza. Now, of course, that's not intended to be a blanket statement, but I am saying that it's not something that's uncommon. It's not an uncommon statement right now to call Israel an apartheid 
state that is is operating under under ethnic cleansing, which I find to be deeply ironic, as Hamas actually is an apartheid state where an Arab is not able to sell their land to a non-Arab under penalty of death. That was the same in the West Bank. I don't know if it's still the same, but after 1948, after 1967, it was illegal to sell property to a Jew under penalty of death. Now, this is Hamas's main goal. Their main goal is to ethnically cleanse Palestine of Jews. It's expressly in their charter. Article 13 in their charter says, there is no negotiated settlement possible with Israel. Jihad is the only answer. Article 28 states that their their entire goal is to cleanse and rid Israel of Judaism and Jews. That that is not even just by definition. That is their own definition of their goals, of Hamas. But the issue right now is Hamas is not being called by many who are supporting Palestine. They're not being called a terrorist state. They're not being called people who are are seeking to ethnically cleanse Israel of Jews. They're being called resistance. They're being called freedom fighters. And this wordplay is is quite tricky. It's quite smart. It really moves the conversation where instead of saying, well, this is a conflict between two people, is a conflict between two parties, it's saying, oh, this isn't a conflict at all. This is an oppressive apartheid ethnic state that wants ethnic cleansing versus uh, poor, innocent parties like Hamas who are being oppressed or the PLO, which are being oppressed. Well, here's a headline, a headline that I think really shines light on what's really driving the escalation in violence, which is not just an eviction in Sheikh Jarrah. But the headlines from April 30th, according to the Canadian press, reads, Abbas delays Palestinian elections. Hamas slams it as a coup. President Mahmoud Abbas, who is the president of the West Bank and the PLO, announced on Friday that the first Palestinian elections that would be held in 15 years will be delayed, despite a dispute with Israel, a dispute where they wanted their citizens in East Jerusalem to be able to vote and Israel said, well, they can do it by mail. And Abbas said, no, why? Because his fractured Fatah party was expected to suffer an embarrassing defeat to the Hamas militant group, which Hamas is the ruling party of Gaza. And they are the ones that are launching weapons, launching missiles into Israel as we speak. Hamas slammed the move as a coup but the indefinite postponement will be quietly welcomed by Israel and the Western countries. From my assessment and from assessment of other journalists, Palestinian journalist Basim Eid, he said as well that this is the true cause of the escalation of violence, that there was calls for violence from both sides, from the PLO who were praising activism and standing up uh, to 
the Israeli Defense Force and cheery them on, which caused Hamas to then retaliate as the Al-Aqsa Mosque was graded by the Israeli Defense Force because a riot was beginning to be staged out of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And so Hamas, which is the defender of Al-Aqsa, they had to retaliate. They had to show that they were the strength of the people. They had to show their force. And so they all retaliated against Israel in this intifad. This makes much more sense to me. When you look through all the arguments, when you look through the arguments of, oh, it's Israel doing ethnic cleansing, and this is why people are so upset. I, I believe that it was this incident in Sheikh Jarrah of these families being evicted. I believe that that's why people are posting and sharing, but it was, it was used. It was used to cover up a failed election. It was used to cover up the fact that for 15, going on 16 years, there have been multiple failed elections time and time and time again by the PLO. So is and was the incident at Sheikh Jarrah and the forced eviction from homes, is that something that disturbs people? Is there a deep history of that throughout Jewish, Israeli, Palestinian history? Yes, there is. Is there a history of that even in this time period, in this date on May 15th is the Nakba, where, where 750,000 people fled in the 1948 Arab-Israeli war, where Israel claimed their statehood and then seven nations turned on Israel to wipe them off the face of the earth, but they routed these seven nations, and over the course of several weeks, they won the 1948 conflict, the 1948 war, which displaced 750,000 people who were told, you need to flee because we're going to come in and we're going to destroy everything, but once we win, you can come back and you can take your, your homes and your lands. And that's just not what happened. Now, in the Nakba, were there genocidal atrocities that were committed that should be absolutely condemned? Yes. And they're documented. And I don't deny it. And I condemn them as genocidal and violent. But if we go back to the beginning, if we go back to the very beginning of this episode, when we look at that clip, we say, are we willing to go to war? And when we go to war, what is the cost? And the cost will always be human lives, innocent women and children, innocent civilians, bystanders. That is the cost of war. I don't say that to minimize what happened in the Nakba, but I do say that to point that the path that we are going on, the path that we are continuing to go on, the path that I hear being encouraged, which is resist more, resist more, resist more. It is a path that will lead to further and further destruction of innocent human lives. In my 50, 60 hours of research on this, I actually don't really believe that I even began to scratch the surface of the vast amount of stories and narratives and and, and history and viewpoints. I mean, the, the amount of videos that have been sent my way, and I know there's probably 
a dozen more of saying, well, did you see this video or what about this? Or you forgot this piece of history or what about this person's story? And, and that can go for both sides. And for each one, I'm sure there are, is one that shows the exact opposite perspective. But if you learned something from this, if you were challenged by this in any way, and you want to learn more, I, I strongly suggest sharing it with someone that you trust and then talking about it. Talk through this with your friends to help better understand the current conflict, to better understand how we might move forward, to better understand the language that's being used and the the oversimplification of arguments that's being used, not so that we can destroy the other person, destroy the other argument, but so that we can, as we talked about in the beginning of the show, not just come into these conversations with contempt, not just come into the conversations with contempt for the other side and not even being willing to listen to the argument on the other side. But don't go away. We'll be right back with a closing Weaver and Loom segment. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can own our future and weave our destiny. This episode has been difficult for me as most of my most of my relationship in pure group here living in the Middle East uh, believes probably the exact opposite of I do and as far as where they stand on this conflict. And if they don't, uh, certainly they've not been vocal about that in social media platforms, and I can understand why. And as I wrestled with whether or not to even say anything about this, and I had the, you know, the multiple posts of your silence is violence, and if you don't say anything, you're complicit and speak up. And I felt compelled, you know, I, I should, I should speak. I should speak the truth. After all, that's what we talk about here on the show. And now, before you get into, well, wait, 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 that's not the truth. What I mean is, I, I need to speak not my truth, not what I'm choosing to be my, my relative reality, but I need to be honest. I need to speak and say, actually, I, I think something different. Actually, when I spend ex extensive time reading history, reading the Geneva Convention, reading the, the UN uh, orders and ordinances and armances and, and the definition of, of laws between occupied territory or disputed territory. When I read all those things, the, the only thing that I see is more nuance on both sides. And to recognize that I need to say what I think Regardless of what people might feel about me, regardless of what people might say, regardless if people will, you know, not be my, my friends in, in real life. And that's, and that's what we need to do. We need to speak truth because otherwise we're not being honest. And so that brings me to our quote from Jordan Peterson. You make your decisions in life, and I decided when I was very young, I'm in my mid-20s, that I was going to say what I believed and see what happened. I talked to you earlier in the talk about adventure, you know, about the adventure of truth, and 
I don't th think I'm happy about what has happened, and I certainly have dragged my family through their fair share of, well, both hell and, and also incomprehensible opportunity. It's ex expanded our lives in both directions to a tremendous degree. But it's certainly been an adventure. It's not been dull. And I don't believe that it, I don't believe that it was a mistake. Whatever happens as a consequence of telling the truth is the best thing that can happen. It doesn't really matter how it looks to you at the moment, or maybe even across the years. Because you have to, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an article of faith in some sense. Do you believe that reality is better constituted as a consequence of truth or falsity? If you believe that reality is best constituted as a consequence of truth, then you have a responsibility to speak the truth. And you can't assess the consequences and say, well, that was a mistake, because part of the decision that reality is best constituted as a consequence of the truth is the decision that no matter what happens is the best if it's a consequence of telling the truth. And so that's what I conclude. It's like, this is what happened because I said what I had to say as clearly as I could say it. And that's as good as it could be. Now, w whether or not that's good, well, it's good compared to all possible alternatives, all possible realistic alternatives. That's an article of faith, as far as I'm concerned. You know, our culture is predicated on the idea that truth in speech is of divine significance. It's the fundamental presupposition of our culture. Well, if you believe that, then you act it out, and you take the consequences. You're going to take the consequences one way or another, you know. So. You want the truth on your side? Or do you want to hide behind falsehoods? I love that. In, in our culture, we value truth. In our culture, we, we value speaking truth, not being dishonest and deceptive, trying to please people, trying to make people like us, trying to make people be our friends, saying what we think people want to hear. And so I recognize that my viewpoints will have consequences. My viewpoints will have, may very well lead to loss of friendship or loss of, of trust, but that is a consequence of truth. And if I fail or if you fail to speak truth, hopefully gracefully, hopefully in love, if we fail to walk truth out, then we're walking falsity out. We're hiding, hoping that people, hoping that we can match ourselves to what we think that people want us to be. Or we're pandering to the opinions of people around us rather than stopping, taking a couple steps back and assessing the situation, saying, okay, well, what, what, what do I think about this? How do I perceive this? Even though it's not lockstep with what everyone else is saying, even though it's not lockstep with our community. But it's through that risking and speaking truth that we, we have the optimal outcome for our life. And as I like to say, it is the truth that sets us free, but it's also the truth that will get us killed. So that's all for this episode. I hope it challenged you in some ways. I hope it opened your eyes to some of the nuances, challenges of this conflict. But most importantly, I hope you go out this week and speak truth 
seek truth and do your best to do it in love. Go out and own your future.